Hello, I'm Naomi Lee. Welcome to The Lancet Podcast. Today we're discussing the series on early childhood development with Professor Linda Richter, who's a distinguished professor at the University of Witwatersrand, Johannesburg, South Africa. Hello, Professor Richter. Hello, Naomi. How are you? Very well, thanks. Thanks for joining us today to discuss this series. Pleasure. So the first question we wanted to ask you is about the importance of early childhood development. It's growing in recognition, perhaps not enough for advocates. So why is the economic argument so important? Certainly momentum is growing. The scientific papers are increasing. We've tracked that. There's an increase in multi-sectoral policies. We've seen uh, 61 countries since 2007 adopt policies for early child development. That's nearly a third of all countries now, nearly half of them in, in low and middle income countries. And we're seeing an increase in the amount of funding being devoted to this area and also the number of early childhood development actors. We've seen important statements by Secretary General of the UN, by the President of the World Bank Group and so on. So there's definitely momentum growing. Of course, the health case is very important. We know that early constraints on growth and development increase the risk for non-communicable diseases, for metabolic syndrome, diabetes, hypertension, mental disorders, cardiovascular disorders. But of course, we have to remember the health case is the economic case. We know the cost of NCDs are going to be enormous health shocks for many countries. And health and skills and capacity are the two fundamental aspects of human development, which are the sort of individual components of socioeconomic development. So then we say, what actually is the economic case? Well, the economic case is, first of all, the enormous cost of not improving the development of very young children. In the series, for example, we show that children with poor development probably lose about 26% of their average annual income as individuals and as families, that sets them back enormously and is a contributor to cycles of poverty. But this also has knock-on effects on gross domestic products. So just as in the cost of hunger studies, we have done analyses to look at what would happen if we didn't reduce stunting to 15% in high-burden stunting countries. And what would happen if we didn't address children with developmental delays through interventions that we know are successful, for example, home visiting and education. And we show that, in fact, the long-term losses are, are very great for several countries, both, for example, in Guatemala, the cost is more than the current expenditure on education. For countries like India, Nepal, Pakistan, Tanzania, the cost is almost double what their current expenditure on health is. So we do know that the economic cost is very great and it is also a case that is being made about trickle-down economic growth is insufficient. We also have to have bottom-up human development growth. We've got to have an increase in the capacity of every individual in order to contribute to the economic growth of countries. The second big economic argument is the relative low cost of intervening. Firstly, either through the better implementation of existing components of the reproductive maternal newborn and child health package. We know that a balanced diet for women of childbearing age, we know multiple macronutrients for children and mothers at risk, we know support groups, we know magnesium sulfate for women at risk of preterm birth, kangaroo care, breastfeeding. All of these things are standard in the maternal and child health package and all of them have been shown to have benefits for early child development. But we also simulated the cost of adding two relatively simple interventions to this package. 
The first is one that improves um, nurturing care and the other helps women combat depression. And the cost is amazingly low on the existing package. It's about 20 cents per year for medium coverage that is covering about 60% of people by 2030. Per capita cost, it's very little. So given the enormous cost of not doing things and the affordability of actually doing something that could be effective is really a very strong economic case. And I think we're seeing that in the fact that this series is being launched the day before the World Bank is holding its Human Capital Summit, which is called Investing in the Early Years for Growth and Productivity. So this is the annual meeting of finance ministers at the World Bank, and they're kicking off that annual meeting with this summit, a two-hour discussion about why early child development isn't a good investment for countries to improve their productivity. You emphasise the importance of multi-sector approaches in action. How difficult is this to achieve and what does it take to get all the players from the different sectors around the table to discuss early childhood development? Well, of course, children do need everything. They need health, they need education, they need water, sanitation, nutrition, social protection, child protection. That means that every sector has to do something. That immediately calls to this idea of multi-sectoral approaches. That is always difficult for governments to achieve. I've worked with many governments in southern and eastern Africa, and this is probably true of governments everywhere else. They're funded in their sectors, they perform in their sectors, they train their human resources in their sectors, they report in their sectors. Very difficult to bring them together, but it can be done. And there are two models for doing it. The one is to have a coordinating mechanism. We have successful cases of this. Chile, for example, in their early child development program, which is well profiled in this series, has high-level coordinating mechanism, bringing together health, the non-governmental sector through parenting support and education through preschools. So the one mechanism is to, to look at how can you coordinate the input of the, of the sectors. The second mechanism is to look at how can you plan and report what the different sectors do for early child development without necessarily coordinating amongst them, simply requiring that every sector perform its job, does what it needs to do in order to promote early child development. If we don't do that, then every sector acting alone leaves too much undone and unravels the good work that the other sectors do. Now, in the series, we are saying, because the emphasis is so strongly on pregnancy in the first two to three years of life, we're saying the health sector is a natural entry point. But of course, all the other sectors have to come in. But countries are opting for different models of coordination. Not to say that it is ever easy, but we do have successful examples of countries being able to deliver multi-sectoral interventions interventions occurring in different sectors, not necessarily coordinated, but maybe planned and reported on in terms of their impact. Are the estimates and the recommendations that you've generated on the importance of early childhood development in developing countries also applicable to high-income countries? What do you see as threats to ensuring early childhood development is prioritised in countries like the US and the UK? did analysis of high-income country early child development programs as well as low- and middle-income country programs. All of them appear to have arisen from a strong political concern with the issues that plague every single country, poverty, inequality, and social exclusion, with the insight that in order to address these fundamental fractures in society, you have to start early. And this is what brings people around the table uh, for early child development. So those, those problems exist as much in high-income countries as they do in low-income countries and middle-income countries. And 
we're in a new era now. The, the Sustainable Development Goals talk about all countries. Countries move between these categories that we're seeing. We're seeing middle-income countries whose economies are faltering and they're moving downwards, and we're seeing other countries whose economies are moving upwards. The, these problems of poverty, inequality, and social exclusion permeate the world. They're all over. And we know that they begin in early, at least one place to begin early is with the individual. And one of the headline messages of the series is that early means early. And this applies everywhere. We've had a lot of emphasis in the high-income countries on preschool preparation, for example. But we're seeing many threats to poor parental health and mental health in high-income countries. Uh, we're seeing... Um, Pregnancy outcomes that are not as desirable as they could be because of new and emerging problems, the growing epidemic of obesity, smoking, again, mental health problems. We need to improve breastfeeding. We need to improve policies to support parents, such as parental leave. The issues that we point to in this series apply as much to, for example, the UK and the US as they do to low- and middle-income countries. Many readers are going to wonder if the deficits in early childhood development that you've discussed could be reversed. So, for example, if kids do have a poor start in these important first two to three years of life, can they catch up afterwards? Yes, they can. One of the startling things about human beings is their enormous adaptation. And given enough opportunity, uh, children, of course, do catch up. The question is that it's much easier to catch up if interventions are early. We also know that it's very seldom that children in disadvantage get the kind of opportunities that they would need to catch up later. But what we do know is that you can get children to catch up, and it can be done if it's done very early. And there does seem to be something very special about the first two to three years of life when brain development is highly plastic, highly responsive to the environment. Now we have three types of interventions in which we have seen that this catch-up is possible provided it is delivered early. So the Guatemalan nutrition intervention showed that giving supplementary protein in the first two years of life actually affected earnings nearly 40 years later, but uh, supplementation given after that age didn't have an effect. We saw the Romanian orphanage uh, experiments which took children into family care those children caught up IQs by late childhood and early adolescence. Children who stayed in the orphanage didn't, and this was particularly sensitive to the first two to three years. And we've seen the stimulation trial in Jamaica, which showed exactly the same thing. Intervention in the first two to three years of life enabled people in their 20s to catch up on income and earnings um, in, re in respect of the control group who didn't re receive those interventions. So we certainly know that it is possible with different kinds of intervention. In these cases, it's family care, nutrition, um, stim early stimulation. But we do know that that efficacy falls off when it goes beyond two to three years. So we have something of a, of a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to intervene during pregnancy and the early years of life. It's very compelling evidence. This is a follow-up to some extent to a series on early childhood development that The Lancet has published previously. Can you tell us what the top ways are that this series expands and extends our understanding of early childhood development? Certainly. So I think that the three big areas that I would point to is the really um, 
strong scientific evidence that has emerged over the last 10 years, and I'll, I'll talk a little bit about that. The second is that this focus is on the first three years of life, that is very early childhood. That is based on the evidence. It's something that hasn't been done in the previous two series, um, what we are calling the first 1,000 days, the 270 days of pregnancy and the 365 days of year one and year two. And then the third, I think quite specific, is being unambiguous in our call to the health sector to step up, given its unique advantage to reach pregnant women and young children. We're really calling out to health to say this can be the entry point for a program of early childhood development that endures over the first five or six years of life. Now, the, the new scientific evidence is both basic science, uh, both biological and psychological science about what we've learned about brain development, um, epigenesis, the plasticity of, of uh, function and structure to respond to the environment, what we're learning about the microbiome and its responsiveness, how the brain is experience-dependent and experience-expectant, and without the experiences that are patterned for brain development, that you actually see structural changes in the brain and certainly functional changes and diminished capacity to learn and so on. So that's just a burgeoning of new scientific information about basic uh, child development. The second is that we now have um, very long-term data, which we didn't have before. One category of data comes from the cohort studies, the birth cohort studies, which have followed people up in, in low middle income countries from before birth right into their 20s up to their 40s, showing that early indicators of development, such as linear growth, for example, have long-term consequences and have these clear associations with a range of um, uh, risks for ill health. The second is the long-term outcomes from these intervention studies that I mentioned, particularly Guatemala and Jamaica and the Romanian orphanage studies. We never had this long-term perspective. We never had 30 years where we could look forward and and actually see what happened to children with certain kinds of early experience. And the last kind of evidence we have is of now scaling up programs that are feasibly um, uh, scaled up and affordably scaled up. So it's just, this is just all very new and it's, it, it comes together, I think, very nicely to say this is the time to move from, as the title of the series says, from science to scale. Professor Richter, thanks very much for joining us today. Your discussion of early childhood development has definitely given us a real insight into how important the scientific results are for the advocacy argument. It's a pleasure, Naomi. Thank you very much. Not at all. Thanks very much then. Goodbye.